The Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mann. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Now, a recurring theme of some of our podcasts recently has been looking at the disastrous effects fish farming has had on wild salmon and sea trout. And we've been examining Scotland in particular as a case study where the politicians have, just like Ireland, pursued a policy of increasing fish farming whilst blindly ignoring the accepted scientific evidence about the dangers to wild salmon and sea trout. So, for this week's episode, we're speaking to Wild Fish's Rachel Mulrennan, who's the Deputy Director Scotland for the Wild Fish Lobby Group and NGO. Rachel gives us some really interesting insights into the rise of intensive fish farming in Scotland and why isolated and disparate local communities on the West Coast were the ones that were initially targeted. We also discuss the closing of one fish farm at Loch U and what that really means and why, despite politicians backing the science around climate change, when it comes to fish farming, they still choose to bury their head in the sand. So before we hear from Rachel, Tom, aquaculture, for or against? Discuss in less than 60 it, seconds. 200 words? Yeah. Or 140, 140 characters. But um, <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's part of a bigger thing. I mean, we have to feed ourselves. You know, without going into too, too huge and into, you can go into huge arguments, but we do have to feed ourselves. And if it was looked at to change the methods of which um, salmon farming is practiced, then yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's really what we're sort of hoping for. And for example, we discussed it there with land-based farms or, or, or other methods that were less harmful. Then yeah, then I'd be behind that. But you know, as I said there, it's current format. Um, it's, it's very hard to be supportive of it. And if you actually just look at it from, so we, we know the environmental damage, that's one, but we actually look at the quality of the salmon that's being produced with the chemicals, with the dye, with all the kind of crap that goes into it. Why on earth would you eat something like that? If we knew more about that, you know, and you see the pictures and the wild fish have been great about this in terms of pushing the pictures of what it's actually really like. It's it, it really made me question in terms of... Um, the actual just the health benefits because I want to eat fish, right? I want it, but I want to eat it from sustainable stocks and also quality fish that's not chemically, you know, driven. That's not raised on all this kind of crap. That when next time I'm putting a piece of this kind of smoked salmon into my mouth, actually make people think. Do you know what? This this ain't good for me. I need to go somewhere else and eat something else. Yeah, no, I'm with you there totally. I mean, that's that's really crucial, the quality, and you know, it's coming to the fore now. Some of the some of the going ons and the practices that would make you question big time about the quality of what you're eating. But the the other one there, and you said it first off, and is the sustainability. And to be honest, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that till we chatted with Rachel. And you know, I mean, I think that that's going to be crucial uh, d- down the road with 
what's going to happen to, to salmon farming. But it's really difficult, Tom, right? I think, and this is the this comes to the crux of the issue is the consumer in terms of choice, right? You go into the supermarket. I want my kids to eat fish. My kids like salmon. Salmon and rice is a dinner they like to have. Mm. I go into a supermarket. What is my option? I don't have any options because what's in front of me is farm salmon. So you're kind of thinking on the one hand, you want your kids to eat fish to be healthy, but then where's my other choice? You know, what other choice have I got in front of me? And as a consumer, I think this is the biggest difficulty. And I know people have been putting leaflets, you know, in supermarkets trying to raise awareness. And even the next time you're in a, in a restaurant, you know, ask about, you know, well, why have you got this um, farm salmon on, on your menu? But we need to give consumers an alternative as well. And this is the biggest difficulty, I think, to reach mass. Okay. So I think anglers are obviously definitely becoming more and more aware of it and, you know, you know, more engaged with it. But to actually reach critical mass, I also think we need to have some kind of other alternative for people to go, okay, don't want to buy that, don't want to eat it, but I do need something else that's healthy. I'm with you on that, but you got to remember a lot of these things are market-driven. And at the end of the day, it's about price. Uh, You know, I mean, all right, quality is important and everything, but, you know, to, 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 to rear your family, to feed yourselves, you have to be conscious of price. And at the moment, the way it's done with salmon farming, it's completely driven by producing the end product at the cheapest price possible. And But here's the other thing as well, right? So we've got board beer and government bodies going on about farm to fork quality. You know, you, you don't hear a single word of criticism about or, or analysis of similar quality being pushed on um, farmed fish, you know, and I think it's, it's just so hypocritical, you know, in terms of if it, if, if this stuff came from the land was produced like this, it wouldn't get away with it. No, not at all. But why yeah. suddenly when it's out, it's, you know, it's in sea, we kind of don't really see it. It's, it's like they're turning a blind eye to it. And that's what really does my head and really frustrates me. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's, what should we say? There's clever marketing. I mean, I mean, there's, a lot of power behind the producers and everything. I mean, for example, like when we discussed it about land-based farms, which seem to be a lot more, uh, a lot less harmful, I should say, uh, in what they would do with regards to wild salmon and sea trout stocks if uh, the production was switched onto land. But I mean, I, I read a bit there where Maury said, um, Maury is the um, salmon producers, marine harvest, and their reaction to it was, well, you know, the way we do it at the moment, there's far less of a carbon footprint. And that sounds fantastic. It, it, it's like it's like the oil companies, mm. you know, for years, they'll tell you why they couldn't do X because, you know, it all oh, does all this. Yeah. Um, and yet the billions, you know, that they're making, um, you kind of sometimes need, you know, like, I'm, <laughs> you know, 2030 diesel engines are gone. So that kind of focuses the mind yeah. for car manufacturers. Yeah. That they have to get the technology yeah. right, and talk, like when companies, multinational revenue companies, start playing the burmouth, or oh, I couldn't be doing that now. You know, I always take it with a pinch of salt. Like I guarantee you, if it's something, if a, if if governments, if the Western society put in a ban and said twenty thirty, these are the regulations that are coming into force. Uh, it has to be land based, and these are the quality control measures that will be in place from the first of January twenty thirty. I guarantee you suddenly technology yep. uh, and money would find a way. Yep. Now, I agree with so, you 100% there. You know, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. 
yeah. I tell you, when there's a gun put to your head, suddenly you find yeah. an answer quick enough. Like, yeah. Well, look, I tell you, let's hear from Rachel because it is an interesting um, interview, and this kind of goes on. You know what we've wanted to kind of cover in terms of highlighting Scotland because Scotland's probably a lot more developed in terms of the kind of fish farming side of things. In terms of the yeah, it's actually interesting there because this really all stemmed from just doing one on Loch Mary that we did with um, you know, yeah. and it sort of just grown sort of gathered force since then that we wanted to look into it more. And it was it was actually great to to chat to Rachel. It was very good, and you know, uh, like on the Loch Mary one it was kind of more anecdotal and, and aside from the fishing point of view, but it was good to chat to Rachel and give us a more fact backed and uh, scientific uh, view on the whole thing. We'll hear from Rachel now. And I first asked her about the background to the arrival of fish farms in Scotland. So as I understand it, salmon farming actually arrived in Scotland in the seventies. So it was kind of towards the end of the seventies. Um, initially it was a very small kind of cottaging industry. So it was just actually small companies um, actually like netting companies and the like. So, so the companies that had previously been engaged in wild salmon catching also, um, as I said, they were, they were small farms, I think maybe 50 to 100 tonnes of biomass, which in contrast now you see 1,500 tonnes, um, so much, much smaller than what you see now. Um, but then over the years, in terms of the, the 80s and 90s, you saw a consolidation of those farms into the Norwegian, Faroese, uh, Canadian companies. So they very much consolidated those smaller farms into these much larger open net farms. Um, and those are the, the farms that you see kind of proliferating across the West Coast today. So essentially the 80s and 90s was the arrival of the multinationals and the kind of industrial, the introduction of industrial fish farming, for want of a better word. Yeah, I guess it's the intensification of of the type of farming um, and yeah it's that consolidation by international companies so obviously Norway was one of the original places where you saw intensive salmon aquaculture and I think that's why you really see those companies yeah they they have ownership of the indus- the Scottish industry now. So but they were essentially welcomed with open arms in the sense of what they were promising in terms of you know economic benefits, you know, jobs for, you know, isolated poor rural areas. Wasn't that the whole kind of argument put behind them? I think it's, yeah, I mean, obviously the economic argument behind salmon farming is is a big one and it still continues to this day. I think, I imagine at the start, it was welcomed in terms of creating jobs for rural communities, but it's important to remember that it's also come at the cost of other rural jobs for those communities, because actually, you see, and you see with Loch Marie, the, the rise of salmon farming does also contribute to the demise of other industries like the tourism industry or, you know, the angling, the whole microeconomy that you had around Loch Marie with the trout, sea trout. So I imagine, I mean, to be honest, that's not my explicit area of expertise, but I would imagine that, you know, obviously any new jobs in local communities are welcomed, but I think the focus should also be on what jobs are lost when those industries enter those communities as well. And nowadays, you know, in terms of how many people those farms employ, nowadays it's not a huge amount of people because um, a lot of it is done remotely. Yeah, and I'll I, I tease that out in a little bit as well because it was another thing Owen mentioned as well I thought was fascinating in the sense of like the, the actual final product doesn't even come to land. It doesn't even, you know what I mean? It's so, you know, it's, it's, it's in the ocean and it can be nearly taken straight from there. Um, to international markets, but I'll, I'll tease that out in a bit. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you something that's always um, 
interested me is the fish farms are all based on the West Coast, Scotland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah, it, there's a couple of different potential explanations for that. Obviously, in terms of geography, if you take it from a non-conspiracy theory perspective, in terms yeah. of geography, yeah. you do have these sheltered sea locks on the West Coast, and they are ideal conditions really for salmon farms. Um it is also interesting, though, that, as you say, the locations, they are set up in these isolated West Coast communities, kind of away from where you see the consolidation of power and wealth in Scotland, which is on the East Coast. So it is an interesting, it's interesting from that perspective. I think you also have really important salmon rivers on the East Coast of Scotland, but then that, from my perspective, also begs the question, if that was a decision made by the Scottish government to protect those salmon rivers, then that's implying that they acknowledged way back when the industry started that there was there would be a negative impact on wild salmon from the industry. So um, it's definitely an interesting question. Rachel, how do you feel about that? Do you actually feel that that was uh, part of the policy of where they were located? I mean, I wouldn't, I couldn't really comment to that in terms of, I think it's definitely interesting, I would say, that the Scottish government has not built up that evidence base in terms of the impact of wild salmon, uh, farm salmon on wild salmon. Um, It does seem, obviously, from a geographical perspective, the West Coast makes sense. But then it also does mean that this industry is consolidated in an area that is hard to reach and it's hard to it's hard to monitor and it's hard to see what's going on. So that is also, you know, it is a valid question that people are raising. Very much so. I'd never heard of that. I'd never actually thought of that before mm. until you've actually just said it there. And also as well as their introduction was pre-Scottish devolution days. I went out stirring the pot too much, but a lot of the people who would fish the salmon rivers in the east coast of Scotland might necessarily be Scottish themselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they were making the decisions yeah I mean again that's that's kind of outside of our remit as a fish conservation charity but Mm. but you do see that historically land ownership in Scotland is predominantly English so that is also an interesting interesting area although you know that could have a, a bearing I suppose when you say that there on, I'm not saying it does, but it is quite possible that it could have a bearing on any decisions uh, taken by, uh, let's say, the, the, uh, the devolved government in Edinburgh. Put it this way, like if Holyrood is run by the Scottish nationalists, okay, mm-hmm. just like we'll say that, and it's perceived that a lot of these fisheries are, let's say, catering to, let's say, south of the border, that they'd sooner, let's say, well, why would we bother with looking after them? The um, Scottish, let's say, salmon farming is of more benefit to us. Mm, I mean, I think it's definitely fair to say that the Scottish government is firmly in support of intensive salmon farming from enough, yeah. an economic, you know, from what they perceive to be an economic perspective. Um, we would argue as an organisation that actually the economic contribution is overstated anyway. But I think, yeah, definitely the Scottish government is it's committed to that industry. And I think that's really the work that we're trying to do is Is to to try and... Like, I mean, you've touched on it there. Whatever employment it did give initially, the amount of employment that it gives now with automation is Mm. really, it is dropping. And also as well, 
like Dara, you touched on it there. I mean, some of the some of the fish don't even come to shore now. Yeah. So what kind of benefits are you actually getting out of it? Like, mm. as, as you said, mm. I'm um, just actually mentioning the politician might, might just tease that out a bit. Um, mm. Are they still very much pro um, the intensification of fish farming? Like um, Owen McLean mentioned in terms of kind of the closure of fish farm at Lock U which is kind of just uh, uh, kind of at the start of the kind of Loch Murray mm-hmm. system there. But what I was interested in finding out is, did it close? Did it move? What was the actual rationale mm-hmm. for that happening? So to start, yes, the Scottish government is firmly in support of the expansion of the interest. It has, it has a target to double production and um, by 2030. So it's currently just over 200,000 tonnes. There's there's an objective to double it to 400,000 tonnes by 2030. So that is, you know, a clear support of the industry. Um, They have a mis... What I feel is a misguided misguided belief that salmon farming, salmon aquaculture forms part of a sustainable economy, um, which it's not a sustainable industry. So that argument doesn't hold. Um, So... Lock U had two fish farms initially um, from the 80s. One closed down about 15, 20 years ago. The second farm um, closed in November 2020. And that was as a result of a combination, I think, of local campaigning pressure. So there was a number of active groups in the in the local area and Salmon and Trout Conservation Scotland, as we were known then, uh, were also involved in that. But alongside that, there was also investigation by SEPA, the Scottish Environment Protection Agency, looking at the benthic pollution on the seabed and the impact on the seabed. Um, and actually, the farm over the years had its maximum permitted biomass reduced from about 1,500 tonnes down to about 400 tonnes. So in the end, I think it was a combination of local pressure, because fundamentally, the, the companies don't want to set up their farms in areas where they know there's strong local opposition like that doesn't work for them anyway but also secondly I think it became economically unviable because the biomass was reduced to such a point where it wasn't making any money so I mean cynically I I don't think that represented a turning point for the industry in terms of you know an acknowledgement of the negative environmental impacts on wild fish I think it was a combination of factors in terms of that local opposition and the combination of the benthic pollution impacts question as well um so was the biomass I just forgive me for just kind of digging in a bit here um the biomass that was reduced in terms of the output why was that so under Scottish regulation fish farms are monitored for chemicals emissions um and this is for you know it's not a hugely regulated industry but their their licensing is reliant on keeping within limits of certain chemicals emissions um and because of the impact that this particular farm was having on the seabed um SEPA as a result reduced the amount of biomass that they were permitted on that site so biomass is basically a euphemism for number of fish and i i don't like using it because it kind of does the you know it it reduces like those living creatures to, to just a kind of number, but it even sounds bad. But it's very interesting. You should say that you know here we are talking about you know the food industry and you're talking about chemical emissions. 
<laughs> that they have to be monitored. You know, if you sit back and look at it, they have to be monitored for chemical emissions, you know. Well, they use huge <laughs> amount of chemicals, mm. huge amounts yeah. of chemicals on salmon farms. Um, and, you know, some of these are monitored, some of them are not, like, as adequately regulated. Um, obviously, in terms of the end product, it's not it's not necessarily relevant to the end product because those chemicals are in theory being used there's a there's a kind of withdrawal period but in terms of the impact on the actual water body it's a massively underexplored area and actually it's not even underexplored like there is research that shows that some of the chemicals they use on salmon farms they are toxic to say crustaceans up to 15 kilometers away from the farms so actually there are huge environmental impacts that are known that are just not being, there's no action being taken to curb those. A couple of things occurred to me there. One is the biomass was only reduced because of it was enforced. Mm-hmm. The only reason it was enforced was because SEPA had monitored the chemical uh, output or wastage, for want mm-hmm. of a better word. What makes lock you any different to the rest of the fish farms that are there on the west coast of Scotland in the sense of what we know is being leaked from chemical wastage. The only difference was that SEPA was able to monitor this maybe more carefully or more specifically. So what I'm saying is what makes, is this an, is Lock U an outlier or do we think it's actually more common? I think it's probably just indicative of every farm that you see on, on the west coast. So if um, it's indicative of every every farm, why is not every farm having its output reduced as a result? Sorry, I know you're not representative yeah, of yeah. C, but I'm just trying to draw out the arguments based on the Lock U case study. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Like Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. And that is probably, I would imagine, where the local pressure comes in as well in terms of SEPA drawing it like drawing attention to that farm, SEPA is then investigating. I guess it also depends on the actual ecosystem that they I would have to look into that a little bit more, I think. And it's, I just, it's just fascinating yeah. I think, as a case study, isn't it? Like the fact that mm-hmm. they can monitor it as a result, they can enforce the reduction of the biomass. Mm-hmm. As a result, they have to close it and, you know, go elsewhere. Yeah. Which begs the other question then, Rachel, is even though they close Lock U, are they really just, just moving the deck chairs that they're going somewhere else? Like, Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, there's there's countless applications in for new new fish farms in Scotland and you know while the decision making process lies with the local authorities so it's the the local councils that decide um, whether to permit or not to permit a new farm obviously the directive from the Scottish government is firmly in support of an expansion of the industry therefore all the statutory bodies who are consulted um, at a national level for new farm applications, they are almost consistently always in favour of the new farm. Um, so that includes Marine Scotland and all mm. the other kind of statutory bodies, including those looking out for the environment at the national level. What science are they basing that on? Because surely, and we've spoken about this, Tom, before, like surely if the science is kind of pointing to, well, you know, aquaculture has this detrimental harmful effects on what basis are they so pro it it's a very good question (laughs) i don't know the answer to that i mean obviously we share 
research that we put out at Wildfish, we we would share that with the Scottish government. So they are they do have access to a wide body of of research. I think what is yeah what is quite telling is the fact that there is this government backed expansion, and therefore the influence of that is probably being felt in the regulatory bodies as well. Rachel, no, it's just that, like it's just funny because like you know if you if you Google anything, you come across some like conflicting almost you know strange reports like I, I've seen headlines you know by scientists supposed scientists that study proves that fish farms don't harm wild scottish salmon and other you know youtube videos you know refuting the the report done by uh dr andy walker about the downfall of sea trout in um, loch marie you know it's you know you know some people might say well you know what do you believe yeah, I think that's really a really good point. Um, it is acknowledged and recognised even by the Scottish Government, by, well, SEPA, the Scottish Environment Protection Agency, that sea lice emanating from salmon farms do have a negative impact on migrating salmon and trout. Unfortunately, uh, some of the comments made by SEPA are often taken out of context because um, a few years back they basically said that there are a number of issues contributing to the decline of wild salmon stocks and you know we can't it can't all be pinned to salmon farming as an organization we recognize that there are obviously global impacts as well so things like climate change um other issues that are also having a detrimental impact on wild salmon stocks i think to say fundamentally the science is clear but you're right maybe the cherry picking around science makes it really difficult to get that message out. Um, also, fundamentally, when it comes to environmental protection, we should be using the precautionary principle. So actually, we shouldn't be waiting for definitive evidence that something does impact. Even though we have that evidence, we should be taking steps to regulate the industry to ensure that those negative impacts don't arise from the start. That's so true, yeah. Exactly. Not just what you said there, the precautionary principle. Yeah, it's so valid. And just on that, isn't it fascinating, Tom and Rachel, that you have governments worldwide, right, in the enlightened West nowadays, right? We've had COP27, right? And they're looking at kind of protecting the environment in the face of climate change, right? You know, and they're willing to accept climate change science, which is irrefutable, you know, and obviously you're going to get a few quacks out there. And yet when it comes to aquaculture, mm. the same governments that are so proactive and pro-listening to science chooses to cherry pick the quacks when it comes to aquaculture, which is actually destroying the, you know, the actual fish, you know, that are, that they're trying to protect from climate. It makes no sense at all. It makes no sense. And I think actually a really, that's a really important point to bring up as well around aquaculture. So obviously the UN FAO has stated that aquaculture is an essential component of feeding a growing population, a growing global population. That's that kind of tidbit is used by the salmon farming industry to emphasize why the salmon farming industry should expand. But salmon farming is not aquaculture. You know, aquaculture is a wider remit than just salmon farming. And actually, again, this is outside of the remit of wildfish, but there are other types of aquaculture that could be explored that, for instance, do not require 
inputs of wild caught fish to feed like they're not can they're non-carnivorous species so i think it's also really important to make that point that it's not about necessarily aquaculture but it is salmon farming or any type of intensive farming of an apex predator where you need inputs such as wild caught fish which are transported from countries around the world to scotland to produce a seemingly or a so-called local product it's yeah it's unsustainable and it's i think that's a very important point with it as well and sometimes people forget about that you know i mean the feed that is used to produce this that and you just touched on it there it's um it's not exactly local a lot of it no it's fundamentally unsustainable so, so which which begs the question as well in terms of it's pure geography that the reason why they're there isn't it in terms mm-hmm. of the water temperatures i'm trying to get at mm-hmm. the water temperatures and the, the kind of the flow and what they're mm-hmm. using the kind of basis for and like we know this can be done in in closed nets mm-hmm. on the land mm-hmm. uh, but fish farming says no costs is one issue suddenly cost becomes such an issue and yet these companies are making billions and billions. And I suppose and this is the same problem, isn't it? When you see with, with the agriculture and fish farming, they say, oh, we can't put it on the land. And yet the money that they're making. And also, yeah, the money that's being made within the industry and what is the true cost? You know, the, the cost of the industry is being paid by the countries where salmon farming is located and by the environment because actually mm. these industries are utilising incredible natural resources not paying to use those resources polluting indiscriminately and then making huge profits from the product most of which the profit that's being made is not coming back into those national governments some of it is but the majority of it is going to stakeholder uh, shareholders for these companies that you know are norwegian companies faroese companies um and just going back to actually a point that you were making about progressive governments and taking on board the science there is a a growing movement globally to actually ban fish you know open net fish farming in certain countries and states so most recently washington state um banned open net fish farms um argentina's done the same they didn't actually have fish farms there but they preemptively banned them i mean denmark's done the same british columbia so it is definitely I hope I see a kind of momentum globally to see how unsustainable this particular industry is. Um, And I feel that it's only a matter of time before other governments will be forced to acknowledge that it's not sustainable by that. I think that's the important thing that you're saying there as well, Rachel. It's, it's not, it's, 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 it's the method really mainly. Mm -hmm. And also as well, the sustainability and that comes into what species you actually farm but let's say leaving aside the species at the moment it's the method it's the open net and the sea whereas you know there is a possible alternative to this you know with land-based as you said it there are land-based sea farms whatever but you know basically it seems to be coming down to cost and (laughs) you know what what is cost is cost always about money you know this is the thing you know I mean, I think what's telling is that I feel like, I mean, personally, the closed containment technology, it's not there yet. So it does need developing. Like there are issues that haven't been addressed with the technology. But I think actually, if you look deeper, all of these companies are investing in closed containment technology. 
they I think they do see that that is a potential future of the industry but in the meantime they will continue to utilize what is available to them which is the natural environment in Scotland in Ireland wherever that they aren't where they are not paying for the pollution that they are creating Mm. and actually what state are they going to leave those environments in when they inevitably I feel it's inevitable but when they inevitably have to move out of those environments. Rachel, just one point. I just, I'm on, I'll ask you about wild fish in a second. Um, I'm just conscious of your time here. There is something I just thought is interesting to raise, um, Tom, in relation to fish farms. And I remember it was Ken Whelan pointed it out to me before as well, is that fish farm, it's the, and you mentioned it earlier, Rachel, is the planning permit, the permit, the permission for fish farms to be located somewhere, it's, it's a planning permission issue, which is decided by local county councils. It's not based on, okay, they obviously take into account environmental and whatever else, but it's purely political decision in a local county council. And it's essentially a planning permission issue mm. as opposed to environmental that overrides anything else, which I thought was fascinating. So it surely gives a lot of room for untold, unseen political pressure to come and bear in terms of when those decisions are made like yeah I mean within the Scottish context I think it's definitely an interesting situation in terms of a representation of local democracy because whose voices are being heard in those local decisions um within the consultation process there are statutory bodies in Scotland that kind of give approval or recommend refusal for any application But then there is also, as you say, I guess there's not a consistency across all the different councils in terms of how a decision will be made. And also there is a question as to whose voices are being listened to, because definitely in Scotland, we've had examples, for instance, of a new farm that recently got permission granted up in Orkney Isles. It had something like 80 opposition, you know, 80 votes of opposition, letters of opposition, two letters of support. And the application was still given permission. So you do have to, it is definitely, it's interesting. And it's easier nearly, I think, isn't it? When it's at a local, it's a more, like there's a couple of things on that. One is you would think it's easier to harness local opposition to something, Mm -hmm. but then it's harder to get national coverage, I think, on a local issue. It's very disparate. Yeah, exactly. I think every single battle is being fought on its own and actually I think that's where it's been quite interesting in Scotland there have been a couple of initiatives in the last few years like there's an organisation called Coastal Communities Network that has been founded specifically to bring together all these kind of small community groups that are organising and protesting against a specific farm and pooling knowledge and experience because it is a local issue but it feeds into a much wider national and international issue. Um, and I think joining up those dots is really important in countering the expansion. I think they need to, like the buzzword you always hear, especially from a consumer perspective, you know, in terms of where the kind of the public pressure comes on. Like if you take the kind of climate change issue, the buzzword is sustainability. Every business, every company has a CS, you know, sustainability mm. officer. Now. It, you know, it's the new CSR. They have to be seen to be doing something. And I just think if you can link in salmon farming, to the sustainability issue, which therefore links to climate change and the and environmental damage. Somehow that's a way to maybe put pressure on, because I think at the moment it's seen too much as, oh, sure, look, I just go down and buy some nice salmon. It's good for me, isn't it? 
mm-hmm. you know, and I get it from mm-hmm. the, and that's it. And it's cheap, you know, and Hey, what's the problem? It's funny. That's exactly the messaging of our new campaign off the table, which is focusing yeah. on highlighting the, well, the environmental, but also the sustainability and the welfare issues linked to salmon farming. But you're right. I think fundamentally, this is not a sustainable industry. It is an industry that uses millions of tons of wild fish every year to feed the farmed fish, 25% of which die before they're even brought to harvest. So you've already got a mortality rate of one in four fish. They're using huge amounts of chemicals. (laughs) They're using increasing amounts of antibiotics. And they are also expanding into for lice control, wrasse and cleaner fish, which are then taken from ecosystems in southern England. So in terms of it is the antithesis of a sustainable industry. It's inherently unsustainable. And I think you're right. Like that's the message that we really need to get across. Um, And it is also telling that the industry itself doesn't or shouldn't call itself sustainable because actually there was an incident a few years back with a certain producer that was taken to the Advertising Standards Authority and they actually backed down before, you know, before the the, the case came to anything, but they said that they would stop using the word sustainable in their descriptions. But Tom, isn't it interesting, like in Ireland, you know, we hold ourselves up as, oh, the, the, the cleanest grass, you know, we've got the best <laughs> trace of butter. Carry, it's globally, we are known the world over. This is what we like to put, portray ourselves as premium products, traceability, quality control. It's just pure. That's the what we want. And yet, Suddenly then on the one hand, when it comes to um, fish farming, it's like, sure, don't worry about it. Like, you know. That's just mm. reminded me actually of something as well that I wanted to say about Locke Marie, just quickly going back. Um, we've actually seen the last two years recovering trout populations um, because, you know, it's just very interesting timing that this last fish farm closed down in November 2020. In June 21, um, we've started hearing reports of sea trout returning to the river you in great condition no sea lice um in a way that hadn't been reported since the 80s before fish farms moved into lock you so that's something we're really keen as a charity to to highlight and we are looking to gather evidence you know kind of an evidence base around that because obviously that's a really good news story that indicates that relationship that's still being disputed between <laughs> open net farms and wild fish. Just by way of transparency, tell us about wild fish, who you are, what you do and how you're funded. Yes. Yeah, so we are, wild fish is a UK wide campaigning organization. We campaign to protect um, freshwater species and their ecosystems across the UK. My role in Scotland is an interesting one, obviously looking at salmon farming because that transcends into the marine environment as well. Um, but we are a fully independent charity. We don't take funding from the government. We don't take funding from industry. It's, you know, donor and, and trust funded. And who's the donors and trust funds, do we know, in terms of funding? So we, so for instance, the campaign that I'm working on um, is funded by Esme Fairburn Foundation. Um, so that's a, a, actually, it's a Scottish I believe Scottish-based NGO, but it's a big foundation that gives funding to lots of different um, NGOs and, and charities. Um, I think it's a lot of individual donors um, and kind of low-level fundraising and things. Um, but we campaign on lots of different issues relating to freshwater 
pollution, so things like agricultural pollution, industrial pollution. As I said, my work up in Scotland is based around um, the impacts of, of salmon farming. Um, and at the moment, I'm working on a campaign that's actually a coalition campaign. So it's a slightly broader remit than just our organisation, but it's a campaign targeting uh, the hospitality sector. So calling on chefs and restaurants to take farm salmon off their menus. Just wanted to ask you there, Rachel, and it came up last night. I was looking up something completely different. I was looking up the book Trout Locks of Scotland, actually, because uh, I wanted to get it. And it's by, it was written by Bruce Sanderson. I don't know if you ever heard of him. But Bruce Sanderson, actually, and this is very pertinent to what we're at today now, because he actually had a campaign in the noughties, very much where he would show up. Uh, he would, um, I can't think of the name right now, of of the group he was heading, but like he would go outside supermarkets and pick it outside supermarkets and try to explain, tell people uh, about what farm salmon was all about. And I just wondered, like, that's the noughties. And yet here we are now. Basically, what I'm saying is, you know, have the campaigns worked or, you know, where 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 are they going or are they will they work now? Have they worked before? You know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of the kind of recent history of the work we've done at Wild Fish, um, until recently, all of our campaigning work was really focused on that government engagement. So we ran a petition, I think it was in 2018, which led to a big inquiry into salmon farming in Scotland. Um, and a couple of quite big reports came out of that with kind of work being continued by the government in relation to impacts of sea lice on wild fish etc um but fundamentally and from the scotland perspective while the industry while the government is supporting this industry nothing really will change so i think this campaign is representing a kind of shift in tactics for us as a charity looking to appeal to more um well identifying chefs and restaurants as a key cultural group that can also impact on the widespread opinion of salmon farming and that kind of opinion that people have of it as a healthy, sustainable, nutritious product. And in doing that, we hope to then shift the debate within the Scottish government so that they can no longer fall back on this position that it's a sustainable industry. So you're right. I think if you look at the last 20 years of campaigning, it is quite it is quite depressing because the industry has continued to expand and things have not changed and if anything things have got worse for wild fish and for the environment um but we persevere because you know these things are worth are worth protecting isn't it I, I think i saw on social media recently it was somebody had put you know like i think it was one of your flyers or a flyer to do it like you know a picture of what farm salmon look like you know in terms of with the, the sea lice and all that kind of stuff and the conditions I think they put have been putting the flyers in the supermarket where you buy the smoked salmon. So somebody, you know, you're automatic. You look down and you go, oh, you know, and it's that kind of. Yeah, it's definitely raising an awareness amongst the general population, because personally, I feel if you see footage from a open net salmon farm, you are not eating farm salmon anymore. <laughs> like it is disgusting. Like these fish are being eaten alive by sea lice. They have all these various diseases that they're being afflicted by as i said before one in four fish die on these farms and um, the conditions are horrific and i think actually it can be quite easy when you work within the issue to assume that everyone knows that but it's not something that is as widely known 
as it should be. And I think that is a key component of our work is to to spread awareness of that amongst the general population too. Best of luck with the the uh, campaigning um, and future campaigns. And I do sincerely hope even just by raising this issue on our podcast, Tom, that, you know, people listening to this do get some kind of awareness that if they weren't aware, a lot of fly anglers are aware, but just in terms of the facts and the truth behind you know, the situation in Scotland and a lot of the same is going on in Ireland as well. So it's uh, just worth bearing in mind for, for Irish anglers as well. Scotland is, I suppose, a kind of a example of worst case that has happened. And Ireland is just as complicit from a political level uh, in terms of um, their government policy on this. So I definitely think it's something we should keep raising um, as we go forwards. Rachel Mulrennan from Wildfish, thank you very much for joining us on this week's show. And don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. The Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mahan. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.